AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Well, Matt, I hear that there's a, an interesting little twist to a coffee machine that's out there. Sure thing. So there is a specific uh, IoT coffee machine, the kind of thing you can control through an app. Uh, this is a company, um, and we're going to, you know, not necessarily mention their name, but uh, they have had a history of devices that have had some security issues. Um, and someone from Avast decided it was time to see how far he could push these security flaws uh, on his own. So he did a little reverse engineering of this IoT coffee brewing device. And it's like a $200, $250 device, at least when it was uh, first, it first came out. And so what he did is he did, he took the same approach you would for any other IoT device. You know, you, you take a look at the device itself, you take a look at the app and the APIs and things like that to see if there's anything you can do uh, to tamper with it or mess with the, the software, or in this case, firmware. And as it turns out, there are absolutely plenty of things you can still do to this device. Um, this is, again, an older device, uh, one that's not really in uh, service anymore, uh, unsupported. But what he found is that if you take a look at the device itself and then the app, there's no encryption, there's no authentication, and there's no code signing. So the attack would be in this situation that you would have to get the device back into its initial state, which for a lot of IoT devices, and I think people who have smart devices at their house are probably familiar with this, you plug it in and it creates an access point that you connect to without a password usually, and then configure it to work on your home network. So you gotta get it in that state, which all in all is not that difficult because you can de-authenticate the device from the network um, with a couple special packets that Wi-Fi uh, supports. You can just knock it off the network it will go back into its original state. From there, you upload your custom firmware, and because it's not signed, um, and because there's no encryption, it's, it's very easy to do this. So you can create your own custom firmwares for this coffee maker. But what do you do with it once you've got that? So one idea they had was possibly to mine cryptocurrency with it, but this thing has like an ARM Cortex. Uh, it's not a very powerful device, it's, it's very much does its one function, maybe a couple other things on the side, but like, it's not a lot of overhead. There's not a lot of, uh, um, it's not, it's not worth it. Let's go with that. Um, but they did come up with a example ransomware for it. So if someone was to knock your, your smart coffee maker off its Wi-Fi, upload a custom firmware with this in it, then they would uh, ask you for money, you know, pay in Bitcoin sort of thing. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean a whole lot, to be honest with you. I thought it was cool because it's a coffee maker. It's one of those fixtures in the house that you know I think about a little bit. I have a smart coffee maker. I've thought about doing this kind of research myself and never have had the time. Plus, I want my coffee maker to work at the end of the day, so I haven't done this. But it's, it shows that you know IoT security is important because if this you take out you know the the coffee making function of this device and it's not all that different from any other IoT device, you know, the same sort of security model issues apply. So um, all in all, like having smart devices out there that aren't being maintained, that are not patched, uh, that people are still using because they treat them like appliances and not computers. Um, I think ultimately you'll, you'll find that some enterprising criminal will try and find a way to make money off them. Now, I don't think it really makes a lot of sense to drive around New York City de-authing, you know, people's coffee makers for ransom, 
Um, but it's not impossible and it's kind of interesting. And I think that kind of research will lead to other more, I guess, impactful findings against more critical IoT. Yeah, it, it, it always worries me. You know, just think, I think of the things that are in my house, right? You know, there's various little cameras, various little equipment. And I, I think about, okay, their use by themselves is, is probably, like you said, a coffee maker, fairly innocuous, even if you did get ransom somebody's coffee uh, for the day. Mm-hmm. But the hopping off capability, so now that they're able to get into that machine and then maybe go somewhere else or map my network to see what else I have, that, that's where I start getting a little concerned. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's possible to not brick your device this way, but, it, you know, prevent it from functioning normally. Um, yeah. Well, it I guess you think, okay, yeah, I'm just saying, and you get into this coffee maker and you create like a reverse proxy of some sort onto it or, or some other mm-hmm. network scanner and then turns around and finds everything else on the network. That's true. Yeah. Right. As, as and a some of those could be other expensive IoT devices, whereas the coffee machine wasn't a big deal. Oh, if I have a bricked coffee machine, I can probably replace it, hopefully, mm-hmm. um, even if it's with a not IoT coffee maker. But if then I get access to a smart refrigerator or a stove or something that's more pricey, to, to the consumer, um, you know, then, then maybe it becomes another, just, a, it's just a gateway into what else is in the network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, the, the medical IOT is where I get, start getting that little, you know, like sense of, you know, challenge, concern, however you want to put it, is that, you know, I got an insulin pump, you know, for example, on, on my Wi-Fi network. You know, somebody, you know, and I know that there's Black Hats and Def kind of been doing some things with medical IoT, but it's just, I just think of things that, I, I think it's pretty safe because it's on my network, it's Bluetooth, it's or NFC or whatever, but if I get a device that's compromised on my network, then what else can be hopped off, you know, and, and, and get to me? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what would you recommend people do in that case? Set up a separate IoT-only access point in the house and isolate these things, or or set up a VLAN for it at the very least. I mean, we're getting into things that are more difficult than I think the average consumer is, is you know, yeah. knowledgeable about or willing to do, especially yeah. for the right. perceived risk, and which in this case is, let's be honest, it's it's pretty low. Like you have to be pretty in low. close proximity yeah. to even kick this thing off. I think I think your point earlier was is that you know, first off, this this example is a device that's no longer supported. You know, you, you really need to make sure that your devices are, you know, especially now that they're computers, not just, you know, your toaster or your coffee maker, that, you know, that you keep them up to date and, and supported. You know, they're, they're not, you know, they, like I said, you people put plug these in and they walk away from it and never think about it. And mm. I, I think I think it would be difficult. I, I was thinking that just what you just said, about, you know, you could do a VLAN, but then you think, well, that would be so hard, <laughs> you know, in the end, even for somebody who knows what they're doing. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you know, but, but just, but patching them, that's, that's not as hard. And and making sure that the um, devices remain current. I mean, I know that there was an effort for a while that they were going to do standards, you know, I think it's still underway or still maybe not quite taken off yet, but, you know, where they do standards about patching and support for IoT devices. 
know, kind of like you do with your, you know, your underwriters laboratory stuff. Um, and that might be the solution here is, is that you make sure that devices is rated, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's out there, you know, in a supported state. I feel like I've been hearing about standards or, you know, self-governing bodies or, or whatever for IOT for a very long time. And I'm in favor of the idea, but I haven't seen anything measurable come out of them personally. Maybe it's happening and I'm just, it's not in my, on my radar for what devices are, you know, have, haven't, haven't been tested in this way. Like there's no, like, there's no safe IOT sticker out there on the boxes when I go out to, you know, the computer store uh, that says this device has been tested, this device has not. So um, whether it's happening on the back end and things are getting more secure, you know, quietly, you know, I don't know. Have you guys heard of anything yeah. like that? I think there was a story that we did, maybe maybe something I just read that, that they, you know, like I said, they were they were trying to create like an underwriter, you know, you know, laboratory like we have for electronics. The federal government was doing so, you know, and some of the standards bodies. But I, I haven't heard much from that in a long time. I, I'm almost thinking I'm comparing it to when you go out and you buy new appliances and they have those Energy Star stickers and they're talking about mm -hmm. how they are at, at saving you money on your electric bill. It would be nice if there was something like that for your IoT or your smart devices. So yeah. you can at least say, okay, I know it passes these standards because it's not even, I was originally just going to suggest it's a really important to obviously do your research before you buy one of these. But even if it's a name brand or even a high-end device, they don't necessarily publish what kind of testing the, the, the smart device went through. It, it, it's it's certainly a challenge. I, like to, I know, I do recall that there was a movement to do some kind of a stamp like you're talking about for IoT. But I, I haven't seen much on that and I haven't, wouldn't know if I, you know, like like, like you were saying, Matt, is, is if it was there, would I recognize it? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I wouldn't look for it because I don't know enough about it. Hey, John, I, I heard you have a story about MAC address randomization. Yeah, I, I do, Ken. It, it, it's kind of an interesting uh, security and privacy thing that's the last couple of years we started seeing with some of the operating systems and devices out there. You know, we, we think about the MAC address, you know, the Ethernet address of the, of the device, and it's, you know, your IP address changes all the time. Every time you change Wi-Fi, you go to a different place, your IP address changes and gets uh, updated. But your MAC address is generally pretty stable. It can be used in, in many ways to fingerprint piece of hardware or at least the, <laughs> the ethernet card on on the hardware and you know it, it, it's a useful mechanism to uh, identify you know the device but but that's the downside right too is if you're concerned about privacy being able to say okay i see this mac address you know at mcdonald's and then i see the next mac address and the same mac address shows up on a wi-fi at starbucks now i kind of know that that person went that route you know, and, and I can start tracking maybe uh, if I have tools that, you know, at, at my disposal, you could even perhaps find if somebody's, you know, is physically in their homes or anything like that just by doing some kind of a sniffing that identifies the MAC address and, of course, knowing the MAC address. So, so the, some of the operating system vendors have taken this route of randomizing the MAC address so that when 
you know, uh, you connect here, it gets one MAC, and then when you go there, it gets another MAC. And, and that's, that's a really good mechanism to limit, you know, and mitigate some of this uh, tracing that can be done uh, by MAC address. Privacy, so, which means privacy is great, but there's been uh, a couple recent issues that, with that, and, and, and it's all related to when applications and processes require the MAC address. So, so, for example, a couple of stories came out of uh, some Cisco VPNs, both for Android and, and Apple iOS, and, and the Apple iOS was the most recent one uh, with regards to the update to Apple iOS 14. Uh, Apple introduced uh, randomized Mac addresses into your, your iPhones and your other devices that Apple produces. Again, great on the privacy front. However, um, if you have a product like a VPN, it wants to maintain that connection to that device. So, so I'll give you a great example is if you are walking around, like let's say a job site, and, you are, and you're VPNed in with your phone, and you happen to change a tower or change a Wi-Fi hotspot, you don't want to have to re-authenticate into your VPN. It, 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 it defeats some of the purpose of having, you know, the mobile workforce that can go out and do things you know, as they're as they're walking around, if they're having to constantly reauthenticate and, and re-enter, you know, those those you know restart processes, whatever. Sometimes it's rebooting the device is the only way you can get around it. For these products that have like a VPN, that they they utilize the MAC address to try and figure out, hey, this guy's here. This is the person. He's already authenticated. I don't need to re-authenticate him, even though he's changed IP address as an example. But of course, if we have MAC randomization, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> now all of a sudden it thinks you're a new person, wants you to re-authenticate. So, so it, it introduced the challenges um, from a security perspective for authentication, but also for forensics, right? If, if you say, hey, I, I'm trying to look at this bad guy or, or even good guy, and I'm trying to say, where did he go? What did he do? Um, if you're tracking that device, maybe stolen device, maybe whatever, by MAC address, now all of a sudden you can't because it's going to change. So I, it's a challenge I think that we just have to address um, in the community and, and re recognize that that MAC address, which has always been a pretty you know, safe way to fingerprint a device, um, is not gonna be that way for much longer uh, with some of these updates. Hmm. So what can you do then? Because it sounds like the, the problem is still if you need to track a device across the network because it's been doing something bad, like if someone has somehow gained access to your network, um, you know, without permission, and you kind of want to know where that device was at a given time, then yeah, you do need a static Mac that doesn't change like that. But I also understand from the consumer side yeah. of things where I, I wouldn't want to be tracked across, say, public Wi-Fi. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, it's, if it's yeah. public, then I'm supposed to be there, and it, it's not something I want people sort of snooping on. So, yeah, I understand that, too. It almost makes me think of, like, a NatPat scenario with mm -hmm. what we do with IP addresses and ports. Um, and then, so I was thinking, oh, maybe we could do this with the MAC address, but it would still, every time you go from one access point to another that's owned by another provider, um, you still have the issue of I have to give up my actual MAC address to get the a new natted one. Mm -hmm. So it 
then the question becomes, at what layer do we do it at, or, or what provider level does it happen at? Well, for, for, for the, for the, you know, for the, I guess the good guys, you know, the guys that you really want to be having to do this, um, a lot of the vendors, and I, and I, and I, my familiarity is mostly with the mobile side, but still, I, I believe that this is the same situation with even the PCs. Is I think you can turn off randomization for your MAC address. It's a, it's a, it's a setting. So, you know, if it's on by default to be random. If you have this kind of mechanism, you know, where you need them to be able to move from place to place, you know, and without having to, uh, you know, to keep that sta static or MAC address, then especially like you said for a, a NatPat scenario, then you know you could probably turn that off for for your workers, but you're not going to be able to do that just for the random, you know, person that that walks through. Um, you know, you can't tell them, hey, you got to turn this feature off if you're going to be on my Wi-Fi, for example. No. Um, yes, so it's it, it's it's I think it's a challenge we're just going to have to recognize from our forensics and our and our and our security analysis uh, groups that we can't rely on the MAC address like we may have been able to do so. John, I hear there is another Markley quiz, and we are ready. Bring it on. <laughs> All right, I will. I will. Actually, this one probably is going to be somewhat. Simple. I don't know. Simple is probably a tough word because then if you get the question wrong, it makes you feel bad, right? <laughs> the, uh, it, it's probably something you're probably fairly familiar with, and that's uh, a two-question quiz regarding the Common Vulnerability Scoring System, hmm. which is the CPSS, which has gone through a couple iterations, versions one, two, and I think three is in somewhat use now. Maybe the new version is coming out soon. So in regards to the, to the CVSS, so the, the first question is kind of one of those tricky ones because it's, it's a not, which is not part of the core criteria for the CVSS. So I'm going to give you a choice of four. The first one is exploitability. The second one is safety. Then report confidence. And then the last one is access vector. So these are these are things that could or could may not may or may not be part of the uh, computations that develop the vulnerability score. Ken, of all those, safety doesn't sound like it fits. Yeah, that was that one, and I'm pretty sure attack vector is on there. I don't know about access vector. So those are the, the definitely safety is the one that seems the most out of place. Well, how would you how would you even factor safe? Doesn't that sound like the op the opposite? Of what you would be measuring, like exploitability, sounds like it would drive the the score up, but mm -hmm. safety, like I don't I don't know. For me, that just seems weird. I'm I'm thinking I'm gonna go with my gut on this one and say safety does not belong. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna agree with Matt. Oh, see, I, I told you guys would get that you'd nail these questions. That's perfectly right. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> really good. Yeah, safety is certainly not something that you know you're you're not trying to develop. An, an analysis of how safe something is <laughs> based upon a vulnerability score. It, it really doesn't make sense. All right. So, cool. so good. So, so the next one is probably even as easy, but but it's one of those ones that people get wrong because they use CVSS scoring wrong. So here here's here's the the the, the question. All right. The intent. So the intent of CVSS is, and here's your choices. So this is this is you need to tell me which one because one of, only one of these is correct. So this is the intent. 
objectify, objectifying severity, decision-making, creating panic, or comparing vulnerabilities. Hmm. Creating panic sounds really good, but I, uh, I have a feeling that that one's not it. Right. So when they say objectifying, I feel like that's maybe not the right way to use that word, but to make uh, a, a vulnerability objective, as in not just a subjective judgment of how bad it is, like taking, taking something and turning it into a number as opposed to a feeling. Um, that sounds right, but, um, comparing vulnerabilities is an interesting one too. I mean, you technically could do that now that you've got two different scores, but I don't know. Could you, could you go through those categories one more time just so I make sure I haven't heard, um, uh, misheard one or sure. missed one? No, no problem. Matt. So objectifying severity, mm -hmm. decision making. Uh, Ken's favorite, creating panic, <laughs> and comparing vulnerabilities. I, I, I'm kind of with you, Matt, where if we take the, the terminology, objectifying severity seems a little off. But if I think about how I read that, it's almost you say, okay, I'm, I'm looking at the severity for, for what? Well, I'm probably trying to compare it to something else, so I'm I'm leaning towards comparing vulnerabilities. Okay, I'm going to go with objectifying. Okay, Actually, so. no, no, I take it back. No, the the English major, <laughs> not English major, but I used to I used to edit newspapers. the The proofreader in me is is screaming that that's wrong. So I'm going to stick with you, Ken. I'm going to go with comparing vulnerabilities. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if we'll see if you should have stuck with your gut or not. Yeah. You, you probably should have, uh. <laughs> but and, and, and objectifying is probably maybe not the best choice of word, and maybe that's what's throwing you off a little bit, because mm -hmm. the, the the whole thing CVSS, which is hard to say fast, CVSS is, it is to create a, a non-subjective, you know, mechanism for evaluating, a, a, you know, a vulnerability. Okay. The problem is that a lot of people do what you guys are thinking of is you compare vulnerabilities. So, and, and that's not only that, but then decision-making. So, so for example, if you had a, um, a Microsoft vulnerability that was scored at 2.5 and you had a Linux vulnerability scored a 3.0, which one is more, you know, w w which one's more important to you? Wow. You really can't compare them unless you start thinking about what's my environment like, what's my, you know, who is my user base? And so you, comparing vulnerabilities using a score like this um, was never the intent of CVSS, but a lot of people do it. Um, they also try to make decisions based on CVSS, saying, for example, I know lots of companies do this. If I see a CVSS score of nine, I'm going to prioritize that as a patching. You know, and, and, and the problem is, is that as a decision maker, you know, over over like one that scores a four or a five. But the challenge that happens when you do that decision making based upon CVSS is again you're not really recognizing your user base and your exposure sometimes to it. Mm -hmm. So if you're using this generic score, um, so Carnegie Mellon actually did a study. This is why I picked this because Carnegie Mellon did a study a couple of years back about 
how we're using CVSS wrong. And what they've actually done in the last year is GitHub right now is they turn out and they actually have something called SSVC, which is CVSS backwards. <laughs> okay. And that is for decision making. That's there. That's trying to help people with decisions. What inputs from your own environment? Because by you can't just make the decision in a vacuum, right? I, I know that one of the things that the CVSS score has been working on is also to, to help with the decision making function is is human um, safety issues, for example. And I hate to use the word safety because we used it earlier in a, in a quiz and said it was wrong. But, uh, you know, it, it's, if something is related to a, uh, a life or death situation, you know, such that, hey, if this vulnerability got exploited, you know, uh, uh, you know a, a breathing machine might stop you know, or something like that, you know, those, those need to get bumped up in, in severity, right? You know, even though the vulnerability itself may not be um, a severe one. So I think some of the decision-making stuff is, is a challenge that people use for CVSS and, you know, and, and how they use it. And then they really shouldn't because again, it's, it's not intended for that. But so that's why I kind of wanted to spark the conversation <laughs> with this quiz. Ken, it looks like you've got a story here about some fraud uh, on Android using wireless application protocol services. What can you tell us? Yeah, yeah. So, what we what we have is a few security researchers from Zscaler were taking a look at the different apps in the Google Play Store and noticed that there were 17 Android apps that were infected with this what's what they call Joker malware. Um, Google refers to it as bread. It's been a big problem that they've been combating for the last three-ish years. Um, and essentially what these, these apps are, are they're dropper apps. And what happens is they'll find the actual code for a legitimate app and essentially copy it, but they'll also add in little bits for requesting specific permissions from the Android device, uh, like potentially access to your contacts list, different device information, and they'll use that to potentially sign you up for, in this case, it was uh, WAP or wireless application protocol services. So what they were doing was the apps specifically targeted here were all apps that were feigning or, or trying to look like uh, private messaging apps or scanning documents or PDF converter type items. Mm -hmm. And they had gotten, I think it said, a couple of hundred thousand downloads uh, before Google eventually picked up on it and removed them. So they, they did find them and remove them. And you, you might sit there and say, well, how does it, how do they avoid Google security scans, and it's what it's because of there being a dropper. When it it'll run normally, or well, normally as in how a regular app would function initially, and so it'll seem like you have a perfectly legitimate app, and then after some amount of time, it will trigger to go have this extra bit of dropper malware dropped on your device. And at that point, um, you'll get infected with, with the malware. 
So does yeah, no, that, if this requires you to have install um, what's the setting? Install software from third-party app stores or whatever? Because I know so, there's a setting for that. In this case, these apps were actually on the Google Play Store. Uh, I know that within the article, it was also talking about the fact that if you go to third-party app stores, uh, this Joker or Bread malware is even more widespread in those places because it doesn't have the same uh, level of, I don't necessarily want to say security, but, um, but Google is, is, I guess, going a little step or two further than the other third-party app stores are in terms of protecting what's in the app environment. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I know that when I tried to install software directly on a phone before, even if it's, if it's from, a, not even from a third party like app store, like it's it's some sort of experimental thing where I, I would actually have to s turn off that setting and then, you know, run the APK, sorry, run the APK directly, something like that. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I know that and Imperium actually did a, I think a, a similar story recently too, that I think they had like a 40 some odd like from back earlier on this year that they picked up off of uh, of Joker, and and I know that you know when I've looked at this before with the the, the malware, it, it's kind of tricky because like you said, Ken, it 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 loads clean. It asked maybe asked for a few extra weird permissions, but it loads clean and doesn't do anything wrong for for whatever set amount of time, and that's how it kind of sneaks by all the checks because you don't know it's doing this thing because it, it has a timer or, or some other trigger that actually begins and initiates that malicious activity that, you know, that if, so if you're doing a normal scan like Google does on the on Play Protect or, you know, on the things that they do on their Play Store, it, you know, they don't necessarily see it because it doesn't do it immediately. It's not there at, at the start. Right. I think Google had said that um, in addition to these 17 apps, if they, and I think this stat might be from earlier in the year, since 2017, they've they've removed almost 1,700 apps that had this type of malware. So it it, it keeps coming back. I guess um, a someone's really persistent or some group, uh, but also it's you know I guess it's uh, lucrative to whoever the the fraudsters are to keep coming back and doing that. Uh, and, you, and you think about what they're doing too, like you said, the premium services you're getting signed up for, you don't really realize you are. So all of a sudden you see these bills that come in, so you either have to fight them or, you know, some people, times people don't recognize them because you, you think of all the other bills you have for different services you may already, you know, enjoy like, a, you know, uh, some of the over-the-top services and, and all of a sudden, you, you know, that onesie, twosie dollar amounts or even the $50 amount you know, once a quarter may just sneak by you before you, you realize that you're, you're being charged. Yeah. Yeah, especially if you're not necessarily looking at every transaction, if you're just looking at, okay, that dollar total seems about right, that seems about right, it can, it can slip by you. What do you recommend people do in this situation? Well, it, from, from what it seemed like, uh, A, it, it seemed like a lot of people were looking for the legitimate app and unfortunately stumbled upon the the malicious app so the one one thing to do initially at least at least to me is just making sure you're vetting what am i installing on my device 
uh, who's, who's the publisher, um, seeing, oh, this app, I'm expecting it to be from publisher XYZ, but it's, it's from ABC. Mm-hmm. Do I have the right one? Do I go back to the list and see, was there, did I miss one? Um, just verifying that. And then also, when you install your apps, and they're asking you for permissions, make sure you're taking a look at what permissions you're giving these apps access to, um, especially when it comes to things like the contacts list, um, you know, potentially location or you know, it, any uh, thing financial for give, uh, you know, signing up for services. And the, the the other one I always tell people too is 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 especially but you got to be careful is is look at the reviews you know see what see how this has been reviewed see if anybody else has said hey this is a scam or this is a bad app so of course people pad those reviews with you know with false ones too but you know it, sometimes it can trigger it's like looking at you know your your review of products on some of the online services I always look at the worst reviews first I always that's where I always start is what's the worst review somebody gave this and then then maybe work up the chain to see if it's worth, you know, installing or using. All right, guys, let's take a look at this week's internet weather. Um, this is the top 10 most probe ports for the past week. You can see there hasn't been a whole lot of changes in the past week, but I'm going to roll through these just because. Um, the first port is 23 TCP, that's Telnet. Uh, 445 TCP is SMB. 80ICMP is ping, and those have stayed in the top three spots since past this past week. Uh, 22 TCP is SSH, 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server, 3389 is Remote Desktop. Uh, that one has moved two, but that's that's not a huge move. Uh, 443 TCP is down one, that is TLS or HTTPS. Uh, 80 TCP is plain old web. Uh, 8089 is an alternate web port. Sometimes you'll see it as uh, a proxy thing. Um, it's not really clear what that one is yet. Uh, 81 TCP is another web port. Now, the most sources probing, this is a, usually a measure of the size of a botnet uh, or botnets. Uh, you can see that, again, a whole lot of these have stayed in their, their spots. I'm just going to run through the ones that I haven't mentioned so far. 8291 and 8728 are both related to MicroTik routers, uh, Winbox, and I think an API port. Um, 53 UDP down in ninth place is uh, DNS. 443 you'll see has actually moved uh, five spaces. We'll take a look at that in a second. Uh, but again, not a lot of movers and shakers this week. Taking a closer look at port 443, the number of scanning sources, you'll see that there was a spike in the last week or so, um, somewhere around 2.8 uh, thousand scan sources per hour. Uh, so 28, it's not a lot. It's not even the biggest in the last month. You'll see another spike around the 16th of this month, but uh, it did show up on our radar. And that's the internet weather for this week. So, it, so it's been a you know, knock on wood, right? We're, we're getting yeah. to sleep in. Is that what you're saying, Matt? <laughs> uh, hopefully. I mean, it's it's hard to say what this represents, to be honest with you, um, especially because uh, TLS is encrypted traffic. I mean, even if we were to somehow receive this, if the, the person who's reaching out to it is expecting a different certificate, doing any sort of validation, you wouldn't see what the, the request was. Um, so we don't really have a good idea of what particular application uh, is being scanned here. 
And even on the, the first chart you were showing, you had mentioned, I think RDP was the biggest mover. It only went up two. And even there, it, it's something that we probably see every day. Yeah. I mean, I usually when you see a movement in here, it's because a botnet has been retargeted to some other port. Um, and it's hard to say when that's going to happen. I mean, a lot of times you would think that if a new vulnerability came out, uh, you would see a response to that. And a lot of times you do, uh, but sometimes you've got large pivots from these botnets where somebody finds a vulnerability that isn't new, something that's been out for a year or two or three years, and they suddenly start having an interest in it. So sometimes it's hard to predict these sorts of shifts. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.